Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When I was two years old, when I was dedicated to the cause of Lucifer, I was at that point a generation witch. I was laying there, practically hold me as if I was me. I couldn't talk. I couldn't open my eyes. I, I believe my eyes were going back in my head. There was evidence of human sacrifice on this fight. One of my first questions I asked was, is there evidence of human sacrifice? And I looked around during the day. Yes. found the man with his fingers sliced off. guys we are here on conspiracy normal and uh it's actually the same day that you heard us on the previous show and we have in the studio luke luke is here hey y'all missed him last week yeah i, I took a break from my hardcore training to be here yeah he's been doing pokemon all all, all this week <laughs> till he runs out of data on his phone then it's gonna be hell to pay and uh, of course producer rob how's it going everybody Right. Well, on the line, we have someone else that we met at the Paradigm Symposium. 
And we did a little interview with him and Laird Scranton back in May there. And someone else that I feel like really needs no introduction, and that's uh, Mr. Randall Carlson. Randall, welcome to Conspiracy Normal. Well, thanks for having me, Adam. Absolutely. Welcome back. Because <laughs> technically you were on there with the, uh, the Paradigm Symposium. Uh, stuff you know when i met you in a couple of months ago i really was not familiar with your work and since then i've gotten to hang out with you a little more because i came down there to atlanta uh to see a friend of mine and also and i hung out with you there that was very enjoyable at the barbecue place down close that was to you that was me yeah <laughs> oh okay that's why your voice sounds familiar <laughs> Yeah, I'm easily forgettable. I, I know. <laughs> but uh, okay, so we were at the barbecue. Yeah, we were at the barbecue. Went back over to your house and chatted for a little bit, and then that was it. Uh, so it was very enjoyable to hang out with you, and you showed us some of your research. Uh, I really, what I wanted to do is, I want to just get into it with you on how you became interested in studying. I guess the twin aspects of sacred geometry and also this idea of catastrophism, you know, how did this, how did this all start for you? Well, you know, I've, I've tried often to find some commensurate come point of commencement, but I've never been able to quite pin it down. Um, just seems like I was cursed from birth with obsessive curiosity and it's been there always, as long as I can remember, just looking around me and wondering about, what is this? Well, how does this work? <laughs> Where did this come from? And over the years, with that kind of a mindset, I've sort of focused in on the things that seem to me to be the most critically important things that at least that have come my way in the whole array of of vast array of things that, that people can learn and know about, it seemed to me that there were certain things that stood out, that kind of stood forward from the the crowd in the background in, in their importance and their relevance to what's going on now and what will continue to go on in the future or were important to us understanding our own past, because obviously the importance of understanding our own past is that without an understanding of our past, I don't think we've got... Uh, much hope for having a successful future. But on the other hand, if we do have um, an understanding of the past, the real past, what really did happen, um, we have a context for understanding how do we move forward from here. But it was these kind of questions that kind of inspired me early on. Um, you know, it was the late 60s when I came of age. And, you know, I got pretty involved in everything that was going on in the late 60s, obviously. Um, in my um, search for experience of various kinds. And uh, I spent a lot of time outdoors. You know, I spent a lot of time outdoors and I spent a lot of time reading. Okay, so several things that interested me that kind of came together was a love of geology, a love of, um, you know, the environment and studying how rivers worked and lakes worked and how the weather worked and how to identify rocks and how the rocks formed under what conditions. You know, that was an interest really that goes back to my childhood. So um, I grew up in a landscape that was rather interesting in rural Minnesota, which was right at the edge of the southern margin of what we call the Laurentide Ice Sheet. 
and over a period of you know tens of thousands of years during various glacial cycles the uh, the margin of that glacier would ebb and flow it would advance and then it would retreat and it would advance and it would retreat it would fluctuate and as it did this it, it sculpted and created a very distinct landscape and then of course eventually the great glaciers melted and disappeared altogether leaving behind this landscape that is for the most part entirely the product of this the presence of these great glaciers in the uh, thousands of years ago so i grew up in that landscape and you know early on i can remember my dad showing me pictures and stuff of well they were probably paintings or obviously they weren't photographs that somebody had taken but you know um you know showing the great ice sheets and and at one point i think he showed me a um uh, a map that showed the outline of the glaciers so we could see where the edge of the glaciers were in relation to where we lived and so on. And we owned land on a lake. And the lake was one of the many puddles left over from the uh, the retreat of the great ice sheets. That's why, you know, Minnesota is known as the land of 10,000 lakes, right. even though there's more than 15,000 lakes there. And then next door in Wisconsin, you've probably got close to 10,000 lakes. But all of these lakes are a byproduct of the great glaciers and our, our testimony to the presence of these great ice sheets that have long since melted away, but left behind all of these thousands of little ponds, if you will. Um, and I grew up on one of those ponds. So, you know, I started very early learning about this. My, my father was a carpenter house builder. So I was always around the building process and seeing things built. And at some point, I guess very early on, I really started liking geometry. Um, you know, and my uh, both my father and grandfather would were always taking scrap building materials and forming them into blocks. You know, when I was a very little kid, for me and my brothers and so on, into differently shaped blocks. And many of them were quite clever. They were um, <clears throat> mortise and tenon and dadoed, where you could rabbited and dadoed, where you could fit the blocks together into all kinds of shapes. Uh, make make things that you know look just like houses, and there was blocks that you could put on that looked like roofs, and so I had all these different shapes of these blocks. Probably you know from the age of four or five on, and then as I got older, that became an interest in geometry, um, which to me is is interesting because later I learned in life that one of the things that stimulated Frank Lloyd Wright's love of architecture was that his mother gave him a, a set of these special kind of geometrically based uh, building blocks when he was li uh, a little kid. But so, I, you know, I kind of see these two, um, these two venues of, of interest kind of going parallel, you know, really from early on, living out in, in the environment that I did, and then, um, you know, having these, um, these stimuli around me. Um, you know, my, both my mother and my grandmother were readers. And for my, I think it was my eighth birthday, my birthday present was a subscription to the All About Books. Anybody old enough to remember those? I think I know what you're talking about. Definitely not. Yeah, they were all about, and they'd come out one each month, and it would be all about electricity, all yeah. about the weather, all about reptiles, all about zombies. No, I don't think there was about <laughs> zombies. But, but So there was all of these books, and I would get one each month, and I would just remember, you know, really just waiting with anticipation when my next book would come, and I could read, and I could learn all about electricity, you know, or, or, or all about trees, or whatever it was, you know. So what it tells me is, you know, that I, I was lucky in the sense that I had things that stimulated this natural curiosity I had. And just about the time, I guess, that, um, 
you know, I, I reached, you know, I guess 17 years old and, and I was having a lot of trouble at school because I couldn't stand the bureaucratization and I couldn't stand the conformity that was being imposed upon me. And I right think on. a lot of, yeah, a lot of people go through this that just can't settle down and do what's expected of them and behave, you know, properly. I didn't want to sit in the desk six hours a day when I was 15 or 16 years old. I wanted to be out in the world doing something. I could have been working my butt off. It wouldn't have mattered, but that's what I needed to be doing at that age. So that sounds just like my co-host here, Luke. He's the same way. Yeah, he's he's got to be playing, doing something. I just sat there and squirmed all day. Yeah. I mean, no, that this is not the way I'm not going to speak for the, the other half, the other gender, but certainly for boys, um, we aren't meant to learn by sitting in a desk when we're 14, 15, 16. We learn best by being engaged and, and doing something. We're being active, and our learning should be coupled with being active. Right. This is why when I, when I have I, I've put together, I've been uh, tutoring and helping um, and creating classes for kids that have been homeschooled since about from 95 until about 2012. Um, <clears throat> and I would create a, one to two classes every year. And it would usually be in math, geometry, or science, and sometimes geology. But I've discovered that really the way that kids learn at that age, and now I think I can speak for all kids, at that age, kids learn much, much better by having the information that they're, that they're being uh, exposed to connected with something out there in the world that they're actually doing. So if you bring the kids like to a project, I'll bring the, the kids oftentimes to a building project that I've got, and I'll say, okay, you know how you did that trigonometry exercise in class? Okay, here's how we're going to use that trigonometry to build this roof on this house. And and this is the way I think kids are supposed to learn at that age. Anyways, not to get a digress on that, but so, you know, I get set about, I'm 17 years old, and, and just before, really, the, the, the indoctrination would normally set in, usually it takes 10 or 12 years for the indoctrination to take hold, people are dumbed down. Their curiosity has been has been watered down to nothing. They think that learning is some boring routine. This is what they've been taught that bore, learning is really boring. If you don't follow the rules, you're going to be punished. If you don't, you know, here your whole existence is structured. By yeah. the time they get out, you know, they're already think, thinking, okay, this routine is the way it is. You don't question that. So, at seventeen, luckily. Uh, you know, I discovered psychedelic drugs. I'll admit it. I'm coming out of the closet, you know, and it, it turned my life around. When I could have gone down the road to being a rebel and a juvenile delinquent, I would literally, because I was getting in a lot of trouble at the age of 16, because I, you know, the uh, the more they tried to hem me in, the more I struggled to not be hemmed in. And it and it turned into some rather irrational, destructive behavior, which which is not unusual when a kid's 16 years old. You don't pretty much know what's going on. But so basically, in a matter of like one weekend, it went from my orientation in life kind of shifted to like all of these, the teenage angst and the rebellion and the the the, uh, the awkwardness I was feeling was gone. And I was on a quest for, for knowledge, for truth, for God, whatever you want to call it. It was like instant. It was instantaneous. It was that dramatic an alteration. So that year, it was uh, would have been fall of 1968, I was one person on Friday when I left school, and then Monday morning, I was really a completely altered being. I don't even know how else to describe it. But at that point, it's like, 
I had, I started keeping a journal and in this journal, I would put down, this is what I'm going to set out to learn this next year. And so I began to delve into all kinds of things, transpersonal psychology, you know, Eastern religion, of course, which was a, a, a big thing to know about because I realized that there was more to reality than what I had been conditioned to believe existed through just my five senses. Right. And what I had to do was set out to demonstrate to myself after about two years of experimenting with various kinds of psychedelics, whether or not the experience that I was having could be objectively verified by duplicating the experience without having to take the psychedelic drug. So I then spent two years studying with a Himalayan Swami and a, and a Brahmin priest, learning the, the rituals and the ceremonies of, of Hinduism and various types of yoga and practiced them intensively for between two and three years. And discovered was this in that, India or was this here in the United no, this States? Was in, this was actually in America. Um, okay. But I, I, you know, the way things work in, in that period in the early seventies, I had access to a Himalayan Swami that had been raised in a cave at 18,000 feet above sea level and had gone on a mission to, uh, basically bring the, the, the teachings of the Shankaracharya tradition to the, to the world. And he's gone now, left this world under a cloud of scandal, just like so many of these guys do. And I haven't quite figured out that out yet, other than the fact that maybe it's because, look, there's, there's, there's me, and, and regardless of how I, whatever level I've attained, I'm not perfect. So there's me, and then there's the teaching, there's the knowledge. And you've got to separate the two. Sure. And I'm not perfect, but here's the knowledge. So I have discovered a lot of people have rejected the knowledge because the, the, the purveyor of that knowledge, the messenger, wasn't a perfect vehicle. Right. You see so that, that a lot. Yeah, that happens a yeah. lot. Yeah. You ha that happens a lot. And, and so essentially it, it went from there to um, a, a variety of experiences. I, just, it, I think a lot of it stemmed from being outdoors a lot and, and observing the landscapes. And somewhere between the mid-70s and the early 80s, uh, you know, in my, my, my quest for learning, I guess, one of the things that I really delved into, and this, again, goes back to being a kid. Early on, I had a very deep interest and abiding interest in mythology of all kinds, particularly, you know, my first exposure was to Greek and North, Norse mythology, I think, when I was probably in fourth grade. Okay. And then... You know, to anybody who's read mythology, once it goes beyond, you know, just the Greek myths and the Norse myths, and then you realize that you get more into the the more universal universality of, of of mythical knowing. You know, then you get into the James Frazier and the in the um, in uh, Mircea Iliadi and um, you know what's his name, the very popular one who I'm, um, you know, who I'm talking about the the, the recent popularizer of Joseph, Joseph Campbell. Campbell. Yeah. Yeah. Joseph Campbell, of course. Yeah. And I read Joseph Campbell and then, and then you realize that, you know, there is this universality of myths and there's a very deep kind of an archetypical knowing that's being, that's being preserved through this, uh, this mythical, these mythical traditions. But of course, one of the themes that seemed to pop out at me that was a, a, a throughout all of these myths that, that showed up redundantly was this idea of catastrophism. You know, this idea of, 
you know, in the Greek myths, there was the story of Deucalion and the Great Flood, right? Right. Um, there was the story of Phaeton's fall to Earth and setting the Earth on fire. In the Norse myths, there was the Ragnarok, the age of fire and gravel, you know, the, the wars of the gods and heavens. And, and, you know, as you begin to look at all these other myths, you know, I think I read Frank Waters about 1972, who did all of the... Uh, published a lot of the stories of the Hopi Indians. And, of course, they had their traditions that paralleled both the Mayans and the Aztecs, the idea of there being uh, four or five world ages, right? And the Hopis have a tradition of the previous world ages being destroyed by cataclysms, as do the Mayans, as do the Aztecs. You know, in the Greek tradition, there's four world ages, symbolized by the the four primordial metals, right? So... You know, it's just like if I think anybody who would say, okay, I'm going to go on a quest for learning, try to learn as much as I can in a broad spectrum of knowledge, but then out of that broad spectrum, focus in on a few things that really seem to be critically important that that, that pop out in terms of their, their, their significance or their relevance, would I think follow a path similar to the one I've done? You know, I... I I've been exposed to a lot of different ideas and thoughts, done very wide reading, and out of that, it seems like we've kind of come, or I have come, to this level where I realize that <clears throat> you know, we're living on a very dynamic planet, far, far more dynamic than modern science has, has recognized over the last couple of centuries, at least since the study of our planet as a scientific undertaking has, has begun back in the early 19th century. And there are dogmas, just like in anything, there are dogmas. And sometimes these dogmas can have varying degrees to which they actually represent reality as it is. We have a dogma in geology called uh, gradualism or uniformitarianism, which basically says that, um, you know, the way things happen now, you know, the way the extremes of of temperature, of climate, of environment, the, the rate of environmental change, the pace, the degree or extent of, of climate change or environmental change, the way it is now, that's the way it's always been for the most part, or at least on any time scale significant or relevant to us today. And that's the dogma, and it's called uniformitarianism. And so if you want to understand something that has left an imprint in the landscape of the earth in the past, you do so by looking at at it through the lens of modern processes, right? So the idea is that, you know, a, a, a water can, uh, a river can slowly build up a delta at its mouth, right? And that material that the river is building the delta out of is material that was transported from somewhere else. So somewhere else that river is slowly eroding as it's slowly building the delta, right? The wind is blowing across the desert and blowing the sand, and the, the sand is slowly shaping the rocks, you know? And so the the... You, you could think of the the, um, the uniformitarian concept of the of uh, global change as one grain of sand, one drop of water at a time. Right. And 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 that is that. I mean, it's real. That certainly is happening at that pace. Yes, it's true. But that's only half the equation. See, the other half of the equation is that superimposed upon this normal pace that, of course, might be interrupted here and there by a, a big storm or an earthquake or a volcanic eruption or from time to time even an impact of something from space. Other than that, it's just nice and placid and, and smooth, and that's what it's going to continue to be. And 
that's only half the equation. The other half is the superimposed or juxtaposed upon these landscapes that are being slowly and gradually and gently sculpted are these extreme events that can compress as much change in a matter of a few years or months or weeks or even days as might otherwise take millennia or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years of normal processes of change. Well, let me ask you this. The, let me ask you this, Randall. Yeah, uh, go for it. The, why do you think that there is such a – there's not a willingness – to say that, yes, there is a mixture between gradualism and catastrophism. Why such an emphasis on just gradualism? I watched your DVD, and you make the point that the Grand Canyon, for instance, could not have been made gradually, that it had to have been part of a catastrophe. But why the emphasis on that it took millions of years and the Colorado River just carved this out after millions and millions of years? Why the well, emphasis let's, let's, on gradualism? Well, let, it's interesting you brought up Grand Canyon. Uh, let's clarify this for anybody that's listening. There are two extremes of interpretation on Grand Canyon. On the one hand, you have the scientifically acceptable explanation, which is that it's yeah. been a long, slow, steady process of erosion where the, the rate of erosion has not really significantly differed from the rate of erosion we see today. Now, if you look at the uh, rocks that have been cut through, down through the, the, the stratigraphic column, we've got basically going back, you know, well down into the Cambrian, over 600 million years old. And there's no doubt that what you're seeing there is an extraordinarily long, span of time from the bottom of the canyon, the deposition of those rocks at the bottom of the canyon to the, to the rocks that are at the rim of the canyon, which are, I think, mostly late Cenozoic sandstones and limestones, which right. means... That's a long time. Um, yeah, long, no, no, actually, it, I'm going to go back longer than that. They go back to the, um, to, the, uh, yes, to the Paleozoic. So I think the rocks at the rim of the canyon, I think, are around 240 million years old. And then... You know, there's the grand staircase there, so that if you go to Zion, you see earlier rocks exposed. If you go to Bryce Canyon, you see more recent rocks. But there's a long, long, the point is there's a long, long span of time between the bottom of Grand Canyon and the top of Grand Canyon. And the top of the Grand Canyon rim rocks are very, very old rocks. Okay, so you definitely have this, this testimony there of the great age of things. But now... To say So, yes, it's correct to say that what you're seeing there in the canyon itself represents millions and millions of years of geological activity Okay, to, to build up those layers of rocks. But now cutting the canyon itself, the general assumption is, again, this long, slow rate, basically at modern, process, modern rates. Okay, now on the other end of the extreme, you'll have evangelical Christians who take the Bible literally— and, and have this very simplified model of Noah's flood, uh, the universal flood, and the draining of the way of the, the universal flood cut the Grand Canyon in one big fell swoop, right? So really, if you start looking at origin theories, you'll find obviously the dominant one is going to be the, the gradualist model of, of 
typical geology, and then you'll also see the other one, which is going to be the the fundamentalist model that it's you know has a religious explanation. Sure, but nowhere in be- but you don't really find much in between. I think the realistic model is that <clears throat> you got a picture that the Colorado Plateau didn't really even begin rising significantly above sea level till between 10 and 15 million years ago. And so when you when when those rocks are down at sea level, when you've got shallow marine limestones that are forming rim rocks of the Colorado Plateau and they're only 10 million years old, well that tells you that 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 rock was at sea level 10 million years ago. So you've only got a, a limited range of geological time in which to cut that canyon. You don't have hundreds of millions of years. You don't have tens of millions of years. You probably only got a couple of million years, right? Well, around 2.6 million years ago, the Pliocene epoch shifted into the Pleistocene. Now, the Pliocene epoch was a time of pretty much extended warmth um, with very little glacial activity around the planet, at least the late Pliocene. The shift from Pliocene to Pleistocene involved the onset of glacial cycles. And what we see is that for the last roughly two and a half or to 2.6 million years, the planet has shifted um, gears back and forth between a glacial age and an interglacial age. We're in an interglacial age now. True. Yes, that's right. How many times this has shifted back and forth? Nobody knows for sure, but you know, I've seen estimates of a dozen times. I've seen estimates up to 40. I don't think it's 40. I think it's probably closer to a dozen times. But also what seems to happen is that when you look at these episodes of concentrated geological change, they seem to occur and coincide with the shifts in climate that are taking the planet into an ice age and out of an ice age. And we certainly see this like at the end of the last ice age, you know, 11, 12, 13,000 years ago, because the imprints of the termination of the last ice age into the landscape are unbelievable on their scale. Um, in fact, in, in September, I'm going to be heading back out to continue my studies of the, um, the erosion of the, the melting ice up in the uh, Pacific Northwest for about eight days. I'll be out there. But the point is, like in terms of Grand Canyon, is I think that, again, again, Grand Canyon is going to be the, the case of where you've got the slow erosion, but juxtaposed on that, you have events. You have concentrated events. And I think that the bulk of erosion created Grand Canyon was during these hyper-concentrated episodes of environmental change associated with the shifts in and out of the Ice Age. Because one of the things that's been well-documented now to have occurred during some of these shifts are uh, vast, very extreme hydrological events. And by that I mean events like a pluvial, they'll, they'll refer to them as pluvial periods. The word pluvial refers to rainfall. And I'm talking about rainfall now on a scale that we can scarcely even imagine. Uh, rainfall that, you know, probably as close as modern analog is when Hurricane Camille dumped up to 40 inches of rainfall on the, on, um, the headwaters of the James River in Virginia in 1969. Right, and to uh, an ancient person, this would be something very akin to like a global flood. I mean, this would be basically that. Yes, and, and once you begin to realize the extent of some of these the scale of some of the floods that have occurred, mega floods that have occurred repeatedly through Earth history, you realize that to, to any group of people subjected to one of these floods, if, if by some circumstance they were able to survive, to, to pass the, the story on and the legacy, would, would have no way of knowing 
to what extent others survived. I mean, if you, in North America, if what you apparently had was a widespread diverse culture at the end, the Clovis culture, because over 50 sites of the Clovis culture have been identified in North America, and then suddenly around 12,900 years ago, they seem to be gone. And the only evidence for the next millennium is that perhaps there were scattered bands of, of uh, people, but eventually a whole new culture arose on the North American continent called the Folsom culture, who is very distinct. And we see this model um, repeated in Europe as well and in Asia. The, 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 what appears is that there was a population bottleneck at the end of the last ice age. And it coincides exactly with the mass extinction of the megafauna, the rapid pulses of sea level rise, the right. rapid melting of the, of the great glacial ice sheets, and the rapid pulses of climate and temperature change that are recorded from the ice cores. So really, the pictures that is beginning to emerge is that during the course of these events, what you basically had was scattered bands of survivors who would have had no way of knowing really what's going on in the rest of the world. And in fact, we find, again, another modern analog for that, uh, Hurricane Katrina in 2005, which decimated New Orleans, which took down the entire power and communications grid of New Orleans for weeks. And, and you had people surviving out, you know, living in, you know, the, in sitting up in attics of their houses while their entire neighborhood was under 10 feet of water with no way of getting in or out no way to communicate with the outside world, and no knowledge of anything that was really going on, if there was going to be rescuers, if they had any hope of ever getting out of there, right? So now you take that and you expand that to, say, not necessarily a global scale, but maybe a hemispheric scale or maybe a continental-wide scale. So you don't have to go to this simple-minded model, like of a universal flood wiping out the entire planet, which is geologically very implausible, to say that there were world-destroying floods, if you follow what I'm getting at. Right, and I think, I think that that's possibly borne out by the myths as well, because you know a lot of people say that Deucalion, you mentioned that, the, the Greek flood myth, uh, you have the Noah flood myth, you have all these different myths. And it seemed, it, I've always played with the idea that the possibility that these were all different survivors. They all weren't the same yeah. people, and they were just that culture's survivor that led to their culture. Yeah, and that's precisely the way I would interpret it as well. That's exactly how I look at it. Yeah. Because there's a lot of attempt to correlate them and say, well, Utnapishtim was Noah, or Deucalion was Noah. Right, um, right. But, you know, Plato was very explicit in his writings in, in – uh, on Atlantis, you know, that, that there was the Egyptian tradition that there had been multiple great floods. I mean, he, that's stated explicitly in the yeah. Timaeus. And I think Plato was, uh, you know, conveying an authentic tradition. Randall, that, yeah. I want to talk a little bit about, because I want to get back to this, but I want to kind of talk about the concept of sacred geometry and what that means, and also how that is included with this concept of procession and what that is. Okay. Well, you see, in geology, you have a concept called scale invariance. Um, it's okay. kind of similar to the idea of fractal self-similarity. Because in geology, particularly, when you start looking at the, the forms and patterns 
of water erosion and deposition. What you see is that there's a consistency of, of geometric form at all scales. You can look at the micro scale, you can look at the meso scale, you can look in, on the level of, you know, in the hydrological laboratory, the stream table in a hydro, hydrological laboratory, or you can go out to the banks of a stream and watch what it does, and particularly after a rainfall, or you can go out like I'm going to be doing in early September, going out and looking at these mega scale features in a landscape. But the interesting thing is this concept of scale invariance. That, and, and this is why, in so many, if you, if anybody listening or or you guys, if you ever pick up a, a geology book and start looking through it and look at the photographs of various geological features, as often as not, you will see something placed in the picture to give a sense of scale. It might be the rock pick tradition. It might be the geologist's hat. It might be a meter stick. It might be a person standing. The reason is, is because you're looking at it and, you know, it could be small. It could be, you could be looking at something that's two feet, three feet high, or it might be 200 feet high. You don't know because that's scale invariance. Now, in geometry, particularly sacred geometry, we find this idea of scale invariance, which is that when you get into these patterns of sacred geometry, there's a consistency. There's a, there are constants of proportionality that tie together the various scales of phenomena. And that is one of the things, one of the, 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 the areas of emphasis that would make sacred geometry different from just regular textbook geometry is this idea of looking for these particular patterns, if you will, these, these repetitive patterns that, that will recur on various scales. And I think that the modern concept of self-similarity is just a recapitulation of, a, of an ancient concept that finds its way into uh, various forms of art and architecture particularly, but also music and also in the natural world. And so, to me, that was a, a very interesting discovery, is when I see these two kind of parallel streams of interest intersect in this particular way. Now, this idea of scale invariance, I'm talking about it, I think, uh, you know, you would probably be visualizing spatial relationships. If you have a um, um, any pattern, the simplest one is the pattern of the hexagon. You know, if you take a... a draw a circle with a compass, and then you um, take your compass and place one point of the compass anywhere on the circumference of the circle, and you're very careful, you'll discover that that compass will exactly walk around the circumference six times. So the radius exactly divides the circle six times. And once you've done that, you can now, you've got six vertices you've created, or six Circum- circumferential points that you can now connect with lines. And when you begin connecting those with lines, it'll create patterns. And those patterns can be self-replicating by using just the tools of, ge- of classical geometry, which is the compass and an unmarked straight edge. But using those two simple tools, you can then reproduce a whole variety of complex patterns that are um, redundant in the sense of scale. But similarity of scale so that the patterns you can begin to create micro patterns within that that are basically the same as the 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 pattern you started with you can create macro scale patterns 
and I think anybody who's listening, you know, it is the idea of fractalization, where no matter where you look at it, the scale, you see this repetitive of, of this basic relationship. Okay. So you have this both in geometry and in geology, in, 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 in things like the way water moves and works, its scale invariancy, really, and expand that concept from water to fluid. Um, so t- for, t- for me, that was like this intersection of these two, two lines of, of interest. Now, we're, we're talking here in terms of spatial relationships, <clears throat> but it also applies to the idea of temporal relationships. So that what you have here in the idea you brought up and asked the question about the procession, and, and that brings us to the idea of the great year. Well, in the great year, you have this this model that in most cases, and if you, if you follow uh, the conclusions of Hamlet's Mill, which to me was the most likely explanation, most of the concepts of from the ancient world of the great year were either directly or indirectly tied into the to the motion of the equinoxes through the um, signs of the zodiac, and you know that a complete cycle of that takes right at twenty six, a little bit less than twenty six thousand years. Now, in geometry, one of the numbers that comes up redundantly over and over again in the study of sacred geometry, and is often associated with the great year cycle, the processional cycle, I should call it, is the number 25,920. Okay. And then within that cycle of 25,920, there are 12 ages, and these are the zodiacal months. You know, so that for the last 2,000 years, the, uh, the vernal equinox has been transiting through the, through the zodiacal sign of Pisces. And for the roughly 2,000 years before that, it was transiting through Aries and that roughly 2,000 years before that, it was transiting Taurus. And we can go back and follow this full cycle. Well, our, our ancient ancestors on this planet all over the world seemed to be very keenly interested in tracking that motion. Um, and precession is the wobble of the Earth at the, at the axis. Is that, uh, am I correct in, yeah, in yeah, describing that's, that? That's right. Okay. Precession is the, the, the wobble of the Earth's axis. Because the Earth is tilted over, you know, it's the axis of the Earth is not perpendicular to the plane of its orbit. It's tilted at 23.5 degrees. And it's that 23.5 degree tilt that causes this, the change of seasons every year. That's if you well, believe the Earth is a globe, right? Because B.O.B. Yeah, told me it was if, flat. If, yeah, if, if you're so gullible to believe that the Earth is actually a sphere... <laughs> <laughs> Instead of an oblate spheroid. <laughs> I, I wonder if... Uh, the, the Earth is not a sphere, Adam. If you've been belaboring all these years under the belief that the Earth is a sphere, I'm sorry you've been deluded. The Earth is an oblate spheroid. <laughs> I stand corrected. <laughs> okay. All right. So as long as we've got that straight, we can, we can move forward. But see, that's critical because the Earth bulges around the middle. And that bulge around the middle acts as a stabilizing flywheel. Without that bulge, we'd be in some deep shit there, Adam. Yeah. Can I say that word? Yeah, you can say that. Okay. We would be. We would be in some deep trouble if we didn't have that equatorial bulge. Because that equatorial bulge stabilizes the Earth in its, its tilt. So the Earth is not bobbing up and down 
you know, by many degrees of angular tilt every, you know, few thousand years or so, you know, to any significant extent. It does change. The, 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 the in, angle of inclination of the Earth's axis does change a little bit, like, a, what, I don't know exactly, a degree and a half, no more than two degrees, over many, many thousands of years. And that is one of the things that actually has worked, that, that is part of these Milankovitch cycles, that is up until, you know, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, were believed to be uh, the primary driver of the glacial interglacial ages. The problem is that those grand cycles of changing geometry between the Earth and the Sun are so slow that they don't, ex they don't explain a temperature change of, say, 10 degrees uh, centigrade, say, in less than five years, which the planet was subjected to, you know, at the termination of the last ice age. So back to precession. Uh, the idea was that there is cycles within cycles, you know, that, that like in, in the first chapter of Ezekiel, he talks about the model of the, um, of the, of the Holy Temple being wheels within wheels. Right. And in a sense, that kind of, that, that idea, that picture kind of conveys really, yeah, I mean, I think you could say this would be scientifically accepted, obviously, because the earth rotates on its axis. It revolves about the sun, Right. It also revolves the 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 incline, the, um, the tilt of the the wobble. That's what I'm trying to say. The word we used earlier. It also wobbles, and this wobble is juxtaposed on the revolution, and the revolution is juxtaposed on the rotation, and then in turn the sun is rotating the galaxy and apparently oscillating up and down below the galactic plane. So you have motions within motions, essentially, and yes. all of these motions are following arcs of great circles, or really to be more precise, they're following the arcs of ellipses, but ellipses with such a, a low eccentricity that they actually uh, approach circularity. But in any case, you can think of it as wheels within wheels, you know, and, and so uh, you can look at a relationship between, think about the average, the typical clock that hangs on the wall. I'm sitting here, I can look at a clock right now here. It's got, it's in a circle. This is like the way all clocks look before digital clocks. You have 12 hours on the clock, right? And you have this circle. Well, right there is the model of the, of the great year. You know, you have the great processional cycle of the Earth going through this wobble, which essentially brings the vernal equinox through each of the signs or each of the constellations in turn. And it spans roughly 2,100 years in each sign or each, again, each constellation. The signs are equal divisions of the plane of the ecliptic, but the constellations are unequal divisions because the, if you look at any star map, you can see that the constellation of Pisces is spread out much broader across the sky than the constellation of Aries, for example. But, but the signs and the constellations are linked. The zero point was somewhere around 2,500 years ago when everything pretty much lined up. But because of that processional motion, one ring has offset from the other one more than a full sign. Okay. But the point I'm getting at is that the vernal equinox, on average, will spend 2,160 years in each sign. And if you multiply 2,160 by 12, you'll get 25,920, right? <clears throat> and... 2,160 can then be subdivided. Half of that would be 1,080. Half of that would be 540. And if you go back and you start looking at sacred structures from all over the world, 
you'll find this redundancy, this repetitive appearance of these same numbers over and over and over again. And you'll find these numbers or multiples of them or sub-multiples of them uh, quite frequently used to uh, describe and delegate these great cycles of time. In um, the Vedas, the Vedic creation, they talk about the yugas and the kalpas. Have you heard of those? Yes. Are familiar? Uh, okay, I believe good, we're good. in the, are we in the Kali Yuga now? I, you know, it depends on which system, and I am not an expert in Hindu astrology, so I couldn't really tell you. According to some traditions, yeah, we're in the Kali Yuga, but there are various interpretations of when that would start. If you actually take the numbers from the Vedas, these vast cycles of time, you know, basically the Kali Yuga in, in the, the Rig Veda <clears throat> is, is described as being 432,000 years in length. So it's an immense know, amount of time. Yeah, that's an immense amount of time. And and where would we be within that? I don't know. So, but then you look at the work of of like Sri Yukteswar, who was the uh, the teacher of Paramahansa Yogananda. He's written a little book which uh, places the, the the great year cycle. I think half of the cycle at very close to the processional rate, but a little less. And he has his own interpretation of, and says that there are smaller divisions that can also be described as being yugas, which, you know, to me, it's not necessarily a contradiction. It's just, again, the idea that there is this scale invariant relationship. But, you know, if you go back to the idea of the 25,920 years being divided into 12 cosmic months, if you want to call them that, or 12 zodiacal ages, you know, the, the, the Pisces, if you go back half, from now, you know, Pisces going into Aquarius, if you actually look at a, at a, um, a star map and you plot the position, you can look at any, um, astronomy software, um, we'll, we'll tell you this. I use the Voyager software, which is pretty good. And actually it's real good. Um, and you'll see that the vernal equinox is, is not even in the constellation of Aquarius. And, will not be for about another four or five hundred years. So, you know, when people go, when does the age of Aquarius right, start? Right. You know, I don't know. There's any, you, you can't say that there's any particular date. It's just, you know, it's just, you know, it's just like the, we can say spring starts on March 22nd of such and such a date, but that doesn't necessarily tell us, you know, the temperature can vary back and forth up to, you know, weeks before weeks after, um, you know, so it's, it's, you can't really say, I don't think that there is a particular starting date. Now we're in the age, of, oh, yesterday we were still in the age of Pisces, and today we're in the age of Aquarius. Yeah, there's no, like, it's, just, that, it's a gradual process. It's a gradual process. However, again, it gets us back to this idea that what I've been doing now is <clears throat> going back and sifting exhaustively through all of the scientific literature on um Nonlinear events in the in in the in the global environment, um, events that interrupt the slow, gradual change that we're talking about. These catastrophes that are superimposed. So, and and what the criteria I've used is, it could be anything from a huge volcanic eruption, um, a major sudden shift in climate that could be reflected in the fact that one kind of forests. Uh, you know, say an oak forest that had been there for centuries suddenly disappears 
and then 50 years later, it's a pine forest. Something drastic changed in the environment, right? right. Or you can look at the animal species, or you look at a, a mass die-off event. Um, maybe didn't cause a mass extinction of the whole species globally, but you can see that there was a large mortality event in a, over a large-scale region. Um, an intensification of, of hurricanes or storms, for example, which which leave a very distinct imprint in tidal landscapes. And what it again appears is that there are episodes where there are lots of storms and hurricanes, and then there's a quiet period, and then there's another period where there's lots of... So, so there's a non-linearity that's leaving a very distinct impression in the landscape and in, and in the evidence that, that has been documented on multiple scientific fronts. So what I've done is collected lots of data together to try to pinpoint when were these, were there, if there were, when were these episodes of concentrated change. And we see that, yeah, there was like 4,300 years ago, there was a cultural collapse all around the Mediterranean. Uh, I mean, half a dozen cultures basically were massively disrupted or disappeared altogether. And this was called the, the Bronze Age Collapse. Then there was the yes. onset of the neoglaciation that, that followed the hypsothermal, and this occurred about, the dates usually put it around 6,400 years ago. And then there was the, um, you know, the, the Younger Dryas transition, um, which we go from the, um, the Baling Alrod to the Younger Dryas and from the Younger Dryas to the Preboreal. And all of these events are now being ever more uh, accurately dated. So what I've done is gone in as many of these events that have been documented now, going back about a quarter million years, which I'm just giving as a rough amount of time for, for, for humans to have been on the Earth, more or less modern humans. There's also the Toba, with, the Toba volcano yeah. 70,000, I okay, believe, years ago. Yes, exactly. exactly. Uh. That would fit right in there, and I've got that one on the timeline. So when you go in and you take all of these, and I've got maybe like two dozen of these events, the first thing I noticed is that when I begin to array them on the timeline is that they cluster. And the clusters seem to be very focused around certain periods of time. For example, if we go back 13,000 years ago, we find a cluster of events. So that if you go back 13,000 years ago, when the vernal, Enoch, vernal equinox was transiting out of the constellation of Virgo, the age of Virgo, if you will, into the constellation of Leo, or the age of Leo, we find a cluster of events. We can go back and we discover that there was an event, a major significant change in the global environment 26,000 years ago. There was a major change in the global environment 52,000 years ago. There was a major change in the global environment 104,000 years ago. You see what I'm saying? So right. the thing that I noticed was that the, um, the dating, which is always is constantly being refined, of these events. And what I did was I tried to find events that I felt like had enough evidence to support their degree of severity that were they to occur today would be massively disruptive to modern societies. Okay, those, if not altogether exterminate. For example, if the event that occurred uh, on the cusp of Virgo Leo, which is actually, can, you know, using astronomy now, not, not some bullshit New Age stuff am I talking about here. 
I'm talking about astronomy. We can go back and we can put the vernal equinox <coughs> on the cusp, <coughs> excuse me, of Virgo Leo half a processional cycle ago, 12,960 years ago. The dating of the Baling Alarod Younger Dryas catas- climate catastrophe is now given at 12,900 years, right? Now, the events that occurred then. And 1,400 years later, at 11,600 years ago, happening back-to-back, basically, if either one of those events happened today, it would exterminate modern civilization, and modern humanity would not become extinct, but modern humanity would be thrust back into a Stone Age existence. It would, it would, yes. the severity of that, of those events, if duplicated today, would, without any question at all, pull the plug on modern civilization. The entire infrastructure of modern civilization would be gone, literally within a matter of weeks. And, and that is, this is not exaggeration. This is how severe those events were. Now, those were some of the most severe events of the last quarter million years, for sure. But my point is, is, as I began to, um, begin to um, uh, plot these on my, on my timeline, the first thing I noticed was this clustering, which was very significant to me because the clustering was around dates. See, if you look at the, I, I talked about the Bronze Age collapse at 4,300 years ago. Well, if you take two cycles ago, two, two cosmic months, if you want to call them that, go back from uh, through, through Pisces into the beginning of Aries, twice 2160 is 4,320, right? Okay. So it's 20 years difference. If you go back to the onset of the neoglaciation, which after a couple of uh, seasons of, of, of uh, considerable warmth coming just out of the Ice Age, um, basically from about 9,000 to you know, 6,400 years ago, what you find is that there's a major shift in climate and a major disruption of what's often been referred to as the goddess civilization, this period that Maria Gimbutas has been documenting in her work, showing that from roughly 6,000 years to somewhere between nine and 10,000 years ago is when peoples all over Europe were essentially worshiping the goddess, you know, and, and this shows up by all these multiple effigies of these, you've probably seen pictures of the rotund pregnant goddess figures. Right, yeah, figurine, the, yeah, the, the, the Venus spread. figurines that they're called. Yeah, Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Well, this, this is uh, part of the traditions of the post-glacial cultures that emerged in Europe. And it's very interesting that when you look at the changes in the global climate, we're in the depths, this planet's in the depths of an ice age for, say, 15, the, the final phase of the Great Ice Age for 15,000 years, right? You've got six to seven million cubic miles of additional glacial ice piled up on the surface of the Earth, more than double what we've got now, more than double Greenland and Antarctica ice sheets put together. We've got more than half of North America buried under this is all of Canada and the northern United States buried under a massive ice sheet that reaches from the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific Ocean and from the northern United States up to the Arctic Circle and maybe up to two miles thick in the middle. That's a hell of a lot of ice, Adam. Yeah, that's a lot. Uh, and, and in order to pile up all that ice on land, you've got to drop sea levels by roughly 400 feet in round numbers. 
well, you drop sea levels 400 feet, and what you're doing is you're ex exposing millions of square miles of continental shelf, right? And so what happens, imagine now if sea levels dropped 400 feet. Imagine how dramatic of a change that would be to the shallow marine ecologies of the planet. Think about that. What would that yeah. do to the coral reefs? What would that do to, to, to the, to the um, biota that is inhabiting the sea? You know, we're up to 400 feet in depth. Well, it would destroy them. Basically. Oh, it would destroy yeah. them. And then after another millennium or two, just like if you went, <clears throat> if we were able to get in a time machine and go back 14 or 15, 16,000 years ago, when the ice was piled up on the continents and sea level was 400 feet lower, like here in Georgia, I can go out where the coastline is now. I would have had to travel anywhere from like another 50 or 60 or 70 miles to get to the, sh to the seashore. Right. And it was all forests for, you know, going 50 to 60, 70 miles out into what is now the Atlantic ocean was forests. See now sea levels rise and all of those forests are drowned. Right, the ice age comes on. Think about this, Adam. <clears throat> how how severe would that be if we said some giant corporation is going to go up and and clear cut every tree on can in Canada, so that there's not a single tree left. We're going to just clear cut all the forests of Canada, you know, Ontario, Sas Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, all the forests from the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific Ocean. We're going to cut every single tree, and there won't be a single one left. Well, that's what the onset of the Great Glaciers did. They clear-cut the entire northern half of the North American continent. You know, and you got to, people have to get this in perspective. See, we're talking about natural changes here that are so far beyond what we have experienced in modern history that we almost don't have a, a perspective for grasping the scale of these changes. No, we don't. So, we don't. We don't at all. No, no we don't at all. Uh, and... Go ahead. Oh, I was going to ask you just the procession, this concept, and we're talking about something that lasts for 25,000 years. And so we see how, from what you've just said, these patterns fit in with this, with the procession of the equinoxes. What, yeah. why are we looking at a pattern that, looking at a process that takes so long to produce uh, 25,000 years? I mean, that's a long time. What is the purpose there of that? What and is it being set up? Because you mentioned it's it's these same ratios, these same numbers are in, are in sacred building, sacred architecture. So, what is that trying to tell us about when things have happened? And is it trying to tell us if something is going to happen in the future? Well, I think that part of what it is 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 it's teaching us about the structure of reality, the structure of both time and space that there is this fractalization yeah. of space and of time and that we can see these repetitive patterns. And in, in, in terms of temporal change, it, it recurs in terms of cycles or periodicities. <clears throat> and I would relate that simply to the fact that all universal motion that we see tends to be orbital motion. Everything seems to be orbiting something else. Um, you know, the moon orbits the earth, the earth orbits the sun, the sun orbits the galaxy. An interesting question that I won't necessarily digress onto now, it could possibly be for a future conversation, is a tradition that there is a subgalactic orbital center, something around which our sun is orbiting, 
which in its turn is orbiting the sun of the the, the center of the galaxy. And this gets us into some really interesting uh, relationships between these various uh, canons of sacred numbers that we that we're talking about here. But in any case, I think that it could be something like this because I think the clue may be the the fact that ancient peoples all over the world had one thing in common that they did amongst other things, but one thing in common uh, along with various traditions such as uh, you know destruction of the world is the idea that there was cyclic destruction. Right, and the the obsession with looking at the sky, right, and all over the world we see you know from Stonehenge to the uh, layout of the the Giza plateau to you know uh, the layout of Chichen Itza in uh, you know in uh, the Yucatan the the medicine wheels I mean the 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 the, the structures in in Chaco Canyon. All of these, I mean, on and on and on and on. I mean, I could, I could cite dozens of examples, right? They're all set up so that if you live there and you actively engage consciously in what these structures are doing and how the axes of these structures will point out significant astronomical positions, you begin to realize, and then when you couple that with the, the ceremonies and the, the observations and the rituals that were going on, you realize that the whole thing is designed to bring human consciousness very, very much in tune with cosmic motion. Okay. That seems to be clear, very just clear on, on all fronts. So these people, uh, these ancient peoples all over the world, were obsessed, obsessively watching the sky. And I think one of the reasons for that is because, just to use the phrase from the biblical, from Genesis, the windows of heaven, which is what happened uh, which was the, the the prelude to the great flood? The windows of heaven opened. Well, you could look, kind of look at that as a sort of a metaphorical description for when the um, you might say when the, the 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 material the geometric array of the solar system is such that it becomes conducive to the uh, introduction of cosmic material into an Earth-crossing orbit, which basically is now becoming a very uh, well-established idea that that the that the cometary reservoir just outside the the orbit of Neptune, which is called the Kuiper disk, uh, can be disturbed by conjunctions of the great outer planets, and in disturbing this uh, quasi-stable reservoir of comets, it can actually cause comets to change their orbital position because you've got outside the orbit of of Neptune on a very vast scale moving out away from the Earth, you've got this large disk of comets, billions, hundreds of billions of comets rotating the sun very, very slowly. Well, it appears now that conjunctions of the outer planets can gravitationally perturb the comets that are in the inner zone of the Kuiper disk. Once they're perturbed, they're going to change their orbital position relative to the sun. And depending on the, the, the vectoral uh, angles of that perturbation, which is going to be determined by when the planets conjunct relative to a, a given comet, they can actually give it a gravitational boost or a gravitational retardation. If they boost it, it moves to a higher orbit. If they, if they retard its motion, it then moves to a lower orbit, which can bring it inside uh, the orbit of the outer planets, um, like, for example, Neptune. Once it's caught inside the orbits of the planets, it now can be subject to 
further perturbations by the four great outer planets, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, right? It turns out that those planets have just exactly the mass and distance they need in order to, as some uh, astronomers have described it as a bucket brigade, a sort of a, a handing-off brigade where Neptune will, will hand off a comet to Uranus, and Uranus will hand it off to Saturn, and Saturn will hand it off to Jupiter. And then Jupiter will either sling it back out of the, the inner solar system or send it in towards the sun. Yeah, well, Because their gravity comets, is, so ma- is so massive for exactly. those planets. Yeah. Right. Okay. Now, all of this is on a tempo, and there is a periodicity to it. And so these comets will come in, and they will get caught into an orbit between the Sun and Jupiter, right? And that orbit might last for a few thousand years up to a million years, depending on how its particular relationship to the Sun, in particular Jupiter, to Jupiter. It'll have to do a lot with the eccentricity of the orbital ellipse? Is it going to be a, a long, flat uh, orbit, or is it going to be a more circular orbit, or anything in between? Well, what can happen is that some of these comets um, can be huge. I mean, the nuclei could be 50 to 100 miles in diameter. Well, if one of those things comes in and begins orbiting the sun back, you know, from Jupiter to the sun, it might be anywhere from a few years in an orbit up to a few centuries to, to make a complete orbit. But depending on its proximity to the, the, the foci of this ellipse, which is either going to be Jupiter or the Sun, will determine the internal stability of the cometary mass. And if you remember Shoemaker-Levy 9, yes. the discovery of that in uh, 1994. That actually slammed that? into Jupiter. Well, but before it slammed into Jupiter, what we actually got to witness was a cometary nucleus coming within the Roche limit of Jupiter's gravity field, which is basically the limit during, uh, if within that, the cometary mass, the internal cohesion of the cometary mass is overcome by the gravity field of Jupiter and it's ripped apart. And that's what happened. So it, it passed by Jupiter as, a, as almost certainly a single cometary nucleus and passing by the time it passed out of the Roche limit, it had been uh, ripped into 21 separate parts. And then those 21 parts, in effect, became 21 separate comets. And over the next 15 months, those 21 objects came, swung around the sun, went back out. Only now, as they get back out, where they're crossing uh, the orbit of Jupiter, Jupiter was there. And one after another, in the second week of July, 1994, they slammed into, into Jupiter. Yeah. Interestingly, what we saw there was after three months of observations, by using geometry, the astronomers were able to predict, once they had the, the, the shape of the, of the ellipse, and they knew that the periodicity, which they, it took three months of observations, they were able to actually reproduce the ellipse, they knew how long it was going to take to move around the ellipse, and when it got back to the Jovian orbit, they, that's when they realized that it's going to be there at, in, at that intersection at the exact time Jupiter's going to be there. <clears throat> and so, in effect, these guys were like prophets. They were able to predict a year in advance that there was going to be this collision on Jupiter, right? Yeah, something like well, that happened to Earth, and we would just be devastated by that. If, if that happened to Earth, Adam we would not be having this conversation. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> it would just be a burnt out cinder. Well, let me ask you this, yeah, Randall. It would be life. Life would survive. Yeah. I doubt that human beings would survive. Not 21 impacts on that scale. One yeah. impact, probably, yeah. Civilization, gone. Humanity, still here. 21 impacts of that scale. Biosphere, life still here, but most probably higher animal forms, gone. Right, <laughs> right. I want to ask you about this. But you have what happened at the end of the last Ice Age. And was there an ancient... I guess to say advanced civilization that was wiped out by it. And is this something that is roughly analogous to the concept of Atlantis? Well, you know, this, this, you know, when you say advanced civilization, that's kind of a loaded phrase. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, it, it, it can be taken a lot of different ways. Um, I would say a qualified yes, but not necessarily advanced in in modern terms, because there are I'm sure there are multiple parallel paths for cultural development that wouldn't necessarily lead to to what we see now, to what we've got now. However, you know, science is science. I mean, reality is reality. Gravity is gravity. You know, people are going to discover things and rediscover things, but I tend to think that when you say an advanced civilization, I don't necessarily say, you know, airplanes and crystal technologies and, you know, anything that we would necessarily, you know, obviously we have airplanes and then, you know, <clears throat> going back to, I don't know if this is Edgar Cayce or where this started, you know, that the Atlanteans had all these various technologies. Um, like crystal flying disks? Exactly, right, because... <laughs> You know, if you read Plato, you know, he doesn't talk about anything like that. What he describes in in Timaeus and Critias is a civilization that sounds very similar to um, basically a glorified Phoenician civilization. You know, um, basically that they were skilled navigators, they were skilled astronomers, they were able to circumnavigate the globe possibly, or at least go as far as the Mediterranean, because he describes them having colonies within the Mediterranean. So when you read Plato, you know, it doesn't have all of this stuff that's accreted to it over the, over the last century or two. Um, <clears throat> he's again describing something that sounds, you know, very much more like the Phoenicians, that they were able to build, you know, great sailing ships and, and this and that. But, you know, then you have the thing that, you know, these tantalizing things that are difficult to explain, like the, the, <clears throat> the universal ability in the ancient world to cut and transport these enormous stones, um, you know, weighing hundreds of tons, uh, which is something you really, even though I've seen attempts to explain that away, these, these attempts are, are pretty deficient. Um, you really, you know, you, you could maybe say one culture for whatever strange quirk got obsessed with building the biggest things they could out of the biggest stones they could possibly transport to prove something to themselves. <clears throat> sure, okay, maybe. But then when you have it over and over again from all over the world, ancient peoples wanting to cut and transport these enormous stones, and particularly when we look at the, you know, the, 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 the cultural context of these things, it, it just, there's a disconnect there, you know. I mean, so you've got subsistence farmers and hunter-gatherers, and then a generation or two later, they're cutting 
50, 100, 200 stones and moving them and arranging them into temples with precise astronomical alignments, right? That just doesn't really make a lot of sense within the modern framework of looking at the ancient world. Sure. Now, <clears throat> there's another side of this that it, to me is very speculative, but it's, it, it has, it's rich with potential, and that is some of the ideas that there may have been uh, technologies developed that might have incorporated um, concepts that could be similar to some of the Tesla technologies, the idea that there's a voltage potential between the Earth and the sky. And, you know, what he was working on, and I'm certainly not an expert in this, and, but I've, I've learned enough to see that there's some tantalizing correlations there between some of the things I've seen that ancient people were doing and what Tesla seemed to be implying was that you could actually tap this voltage between uh, <clears throat> the Earth and the sky, and apparently uh, was able to do that successfully experimentally on a number of uh, you know, a number of occasions, and was developing technologies. Now, if we had, for example, if modern civilization had developed using Tesla technologies as their fundamental energy source rather than fossil fuels, our modern culture would look a whole lot different than it does now. Oh, yeah. It, it would look vastly different, see? Now, again, I'm not going to put forward, hey, this is the way it was back then, I'm going to say that it's worthy of consideration for a number of reasons that we probably wouldn't have time to necessarily get into tonight, but the idea that they may have been utilizing such a technology um, that did was able to tap the, the voltage differential between, and maybe understood uh, the nature of crystalline rocks that subjected to certain pressures at certain times could actually induce a voltage potential, which which actually can be verified, um, particularly uh, the crystalline rocks, the, uh, which have a high constituency of quartz. When you subject it to pressure, it, it can actually generate a voltage potential. And, and it is also well known that the motions of the moon and the planets can induce gravitational stresses in the planet that could have that effect. You know, I mean, obviously, the most salient um, example of this is the ocean tides, right? But Within, you know, that's the thing that we see, obviously, but there are also tides within the lithosphere of the Earth as well as the hydrosphere. Now, those tides within the lithosphere could be setting up and apparently are setting up voltage potentials. Now, what I'm getting at is that perhaps a technology that would um, exploit those kind of voltage potentials um, would look so different than. Uh, you know, a civilization built around that would look so different from our modern civilization that particularly, uh, you know, once you had a couple of catastrophes intervene, you know, you're, you, what are you going to see? What's going to be left? Yeah, we wouldn't or, recognize you know, even, it as what we would see in our industrial, modern industrial society as being an advanced civilization. And I think you're blowing Luke's mind over here. I think he's got <laughs> brain matter dripping out of his ears. Yeah. Well, this is a good thing. I, I, I've always had this fascination with uh, antennas. Uh, you, you see them reoccurring on the top of temples, you know, Taiwanese temples, yeah. Buddhist temples, and you see them in India. And there's there's uh, the antenna shapes all in the ground in uh, South America, those huge reliefs, you know, st sticking out of the ground that you can only see from from the sky. 
And, and you see just these antenna shapes all over ancient culture. And it just uh, makes me think that what you say, you know, with the lithosphere, uh, there's some kind of correlation going on there. Sure. And uh, it's also been demonstrated by a number of researchers and engineers and scientists over the years that that these stresses that are you know, in the lithosphere can oftentimes focus or concentrate along the, the zones of least resistance, which are the fractures and the fault lines in the Earth's crust. Um, and then if you look at the work of Paul Devereaux and some of the people of the Dragon Project in England, uh, documenting how so many of the uh, ancient megalithic stone remains are placed uh, adjacent to or over uh, the fault line, pa- the pattern of fault lines in England. And then, you know, it's well known that if you start looking at, and this is something I've looked into quite exhaustively, is the the geographic and sighting considerations for ancient temples. And, and you find this all over the world. They're always built around water, and typically underground water. Um, all of the cathedrals, the great cathedrals in Europe, are usually built over um what sometimes are referred either springs, what were ancient sacred springs or wells or intersecting uh, aquifers below the the surface in the um, Chartres Cathedral, for example, there is a uh, an aquifer that runs under the cathedral, and there's a well that was considered a sacred well uh, for for centuries and centuries before uh, Chartres was ever built there. And at Stonehenge, near the altar rock, there was once a spring that has been since sealed up by the some, one of the environmental organizations in England. I think they did it back in the 50s or 60s, sealed it up with concrete. But you can go, like the Indian mounds in North America are always placed relative to water. So this is some of the, one of the things that I've been yes. mapping on a quite considerable scale is that you find this relationship between the placement of the sacred structure on the surface of the earth and what's going on hydrologically and geologically under the surface of the earth. But then at the same time, it's oriented to what's going on in the heavens above. So it's, to me, just tremendous uh, ideas that could, could emerge out of looking at this and what the meaning of all of this is. And to me, I, you know, while not in any way diminishing the, the, you know, the spiritual or sacred aspect of it, what really interests me is the technological aspects of it. And that, that what, what we're seeing here is the remnants of some type of an ancient technology. And it, and it brings up right. the idea of uh, the work of Wilhelm Reich, who was really onto some very interesting stuff before he got hauled away to federal prison. Yeah, we talked to Peter Robbins about him. He, Peter, Peter swears by Wilhelm Reich's technology. So what did he have to did he have anything to say about Reich's work with cloudbusters? Yeah, yeah, we talked about yeah, we talked about the organ accumulators and the cloudbusters. All the all that stuff we I'm talked gonna about. I'm going to be a skeptic him. until I until I see that for myself. Of course. <laughs> okay. Well, consider this. You know the the concept now of an organ accumulator. It's it's in the layering, right? The 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 layer of contrasting types of material and the greater the layering up to a point the greater the concentration of whatever you want to call it, orgone or life energy or prana or shakti force or, or ruach or whatever, right? It's in the layering, right? And, and what he did was he would layer, uh, uh, there'd be a layer of organic and a layer of inorganic material, right? 
are you with me on that? Did you guys talk about that? Yeah. Did all the structure yeah. of the, the Oregon accumulator? Okay. Right. So now picture this. Indian mounds in North America are always layered, and the layers are such that you'll have a layer of primarily rocky crystalline material, and then it'll be interspersed with a layer uh, that contains a lot of uh, biological material. And you will have three or four or five or six layers of this material built up into these truncated pyramidal shapes or circular shapes. And these, the monumental earthworks of North America, so picture you've got this layered structure set oftentimes over a spring of water. And Wilhelm Reich said that that the orgo, the, the the cloud buster wouldn't work unless it was grounded into water, preferably moving water. So you know he had this uh, trailing off the end of the the back end of the orgon, uh, the the cloud buster. He had a a woven strand of BX cable that he would then feed into a river or a creek or or an underground well because that's how he closed the circuit between the circulation in the sky and the circulation. Uh, the subterranean circulation in the hydrosphere. It was like closing an electrical circuit, in effect, is how I picture the, the function of a, of a cloud buster. And then, you know, you look at the array of pipes and the cloud buster, it's, it's reminiscent of what you just mentioned in terms of antennas, right? And then you look at the, 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 the steeples on the Gothic cathedrals, and effectively, those are antennas, in effect. And they're built right over these underground springs, Invariably, you find the presence of the spring in the underground water over and over and over again. Hmm. Well, we could just dismiss this with a wave of a hand and say it's coincidence, or we could say, well, wait a second. Maybe there's something going on here, and maybe they knew something that we've forgotten. And maybe there's right. more to this than meets the eye. Gotcha. And maybe this is going to take us down the road of understanding uh, better than whatever this ancient technology was, which... Again, I think we could draw from Tesla, we could draw from Wilhelm Reich, um, and then we can also draw from some of the literature that describes this. I think that the Grail literature is all about that. I mean, the Grail literature is all about restoring life to a devastated, to, to the wasteland in the aftermath of a catastrophe. This is, this is where I wanted to go with this next. And what I, this is about Freemasonry. Okay. Getting deep here. <clears throat> these kind of concepts, and you've already just touched on it, do these concepts about procession, about sacred geometry, uh, you just mentioned about the Grail legends, do these concepts exist in Freemasonry? And if that is true, does Freemasonry relate to preserving some of this knowledge of, a, of, a, of this ancient civilization? <clears throat> Well, it's certainly, I think, it's all about preserving knowledge. I mean, that's the essence of the whole craft. I mean, it does lots of other things. It does, you know, every day in America, Masons raise over $2 million for charity, and that's a big part of it, you know. Um, and they, you know, have these quaint ceremonies and rituals and everything. But, yeah, I mean, basically, Freemasonry is a vehicle for the preservation and transmission of ancient symbolism. Now, whatever that means, you can, you know, people, so many people now are looking at Freemasonry through the conspiratorial lens and not seeing it for what it really is, you know, and I like to point out that, you know, these days you don't find too many Masons 
you know, within the, 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 the halls of power anymore. Sure, in times past, yeah, you yeah. did, simply because Freemasonry was more prominent, more prevalent, uh, socially speaking, than it is now, you know, simply because back, you know, 100 years ago, or going all the way back to the colonial times, there wasn't that much to do socially for, for men, for example. You didn't sit down and watch TV, you didn't go to the movies, you didn't, you know, get together and play cards. Well, maybe you did that. But, you know, so much of the stuff that we do now, what did people do back then? Well, and it turns out that you've got this organization that whose roots go back way back. I mean, we, you know, the modern Masonic fraternity uh, goes back to 1717 with the, the, the emergence of four lodges in, in the British Isles. And, and that's usually oftentimes in the more... Um, mundane versions or reductionist histories of Freemasonry. That's given all oh, that Freemasonry started in 1717. But you can easily point out, yeah, but those were already pre-existing lodges that, that, that merged and created the Grand Lodge of England. That wasn't the start of Freemasonry. Uh, it was much older look, than that. Much older, right. Yeah. And, and so now you've got the legendary history of Freemasonry, and then you've got the documented historical interpretation of Freemasonry. Well, a lot of researchers in the last 25, 30, 40 years have built a pretty strong case that you can trace uh, most of Freemasonry definitely back to the Middle Ages and to the era of the Templar Knights and the, the, the lodges of, of craft guild, guilds, uh, craft guilds that built the great cathedrals and stuff back in the 12th and 13th centuries. But then you look at the, the, the structure of it and you realize that it's, you know, just echoing or duplicating or recapitulating the structure of all of these ancient organizations from the Dionysian artificers to the Kabiri to the Mithraists, Mithraists um, to the Roman Collegium, um, you know, going back at least 3,000 years, at least 3,000 years. Now, you can't trace a historical continuum from 3,000 years ago down to modern times. You can trace a historical continuum back perhaps to the 1600s. And then it becomes a bit spotty, but, you but know... But you can it, trace it, these esoteric traditions through time. But you can trace the esoteric traditions, yeah. the, the ritualism and the symbolism back three... You can actually trace the symbolism back to ancient Egypt, <clears throat> because just as Christianity is a retelling of the rites, the Assyrian rites, so is Freemasonry. You know, basically the idea of the death and resurrection of the king, or the, the God-man. Yeah. Hello? Yeah, we're here. Oh, okay. It just sounded very quiet for a moment. <laughs> <laughs> Uh-oh, am I saying something I'm not allowed to say? Uh, no. uh, we're, we're just balls deep in your conversation. <laughs> okay, so, it's, so basically Freemasonry is a, it's this body of symbolism that's been handed down uh, for hundreds of years, and now it looks very archaic and quaint and kind of bizarre and idiosyncratic. But when you begin to look at it, you know, it's like, I don't know how to put it. You know, each lodge is, in effect, an effigy. Each lodge is a miniaturization of a model of the world. Yes. So a candidate goes into the lodge. The first thing you do is you, you, you're, when you're initiated and brought into a lodge is you're, <clears throat> you're placed between two columns, two pillars. And one of the pillars has a globe of the earth, and the other has the celestial globe on it. And the idea right from the very beginning is what this work is about is the integration of the terrestrial with the cosmic. Right there. That's, 
it's right there. That's the first thing you're then you're you're initiated, you're brought in, you circumambulate the lodge, and what you're actually doing is you're 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 like an you're an or you're a satellite in orbit. You're duplicating an orbit. You're following an elliptical path around the holy altar, and what this represents is you become an orbiting body within this, and there are stations that you stop at, and things are done, and things are said, and then you're exposed to this variety of symbolism that's displayed about the Lodge in various ways. And then they have, uh, for example, Masonic carpets that will be brought out and rolled out on the floor, and these Masonic carpets are loaded with symbolism in a certain pattern, in a certain way. The, The Masonic apron will oftentimes have similar, if not identical, symbolism on it. Um, So what you have is this corpus of symbolism that goes back way, way back. And you find it all assembled in, in the, not only in the layout of the lodge, the symbolism in the lodge, it's also encoded in the ritual itself, in the words, in the phrases, in the names that are used, in the in the um, events that are retold through the course of the the ritual, the um, <clears throat> you know the slaying of the master builder, um, all of these things that that are uh, encoded in this, I basically look at as as, as a tradition that's been handed down, and the uh, primary function of Freemasonry is to preserve is to serve as a vehicle for the preservation of this corpus of symbolism until such time as somebody has the wherewithal to uh, decipher it. And basically there is a coherent meaning to the symbolism. And, you know, we, since we don't have uh, any visuals here for this, you know, maybe in the future if you do a, um, a podcast where we can do a, a, a Skype or something, I can actually pull up some visuals and show you some of the stuff because it's, it's pretty interesting. But it ties right in with basically what we've been talking about. Right. It, <clears throat> There was some several things like you showed me us at the lodge when where the Paradigm Symposium was. You actually pointed out there was a little. It showed all these different little Freemasonic portraits or like uh, of different scenes from right. the history. Or, or I guess the history yeah. of Freemasonry. And one of them actually showed Noah's Ark, and you actually pointed yeah. out that there was one with two guys in like they like it was like a graveyard setting, and one was kneeling at the grave and he was crying, and then there was like a comet or like a, a shooting star in the corner of that little panel. Yeah, yeah. And you were actually making the point that that was him crying for the antediluvian world. Yeah, that actually was a, a female that was kneeled down crying. Okay. And then it was a sort of a Saturnian figure with a long beard holding a sickle, which is also the, a symbol of world destruction in one hand. And she's weeping over, weeping over a broken column, which is a symbol of <clears throat> basically the, the collapse of civilization. And that was yeah, I, did. I showed that to you, didn't I? Yeah, I mean, that was utterly fascinating. I and mean, that's something that you would never, if you didn't know what it was, you just think, oh, it's just some weird picture. But yeah. to put that's like that's putting it's like putting two things together and it and it makes sense because you have all these different uh things about the pillars of Enoch and the royal yeah. arch of Enoch and the idea yeah. that Enoch was the preserver 
of the antediluvian knowledge and all this kind of stuff that goes into the mythology that's some of that's in the Bible, some of that's in the book of Enoch. So there's a connection to that as well. Yes, exactly. And, you know, this is the two pillars. Yep. You know, when you're when I was mentioning, you know, that the, they're they're on the front of every lodge or, you know, somewhere represented in the lodge. And when you when you come in as a candidate, you stand between those two pillars for your initiation. And those <clears throat> harken back to the pillars of Enoch, you know, which were the, the, the two pillars that were set up to lead uh, post diluvian man to the uh, to the time capsule that contained knowledge of the anti diluvian world. And We're, so one of the pillars designed to withstand flood and one to withstand fire. So that's why there were two. <clears throat> and so those two Enochian pillars are, the, you know, the, that idea is preserved in all Masonic lodges. You will, will not go to a Masonic lodge and not see those two pillars. So these Enochian pillars, I mean, is is this a real place? Is this a real time capsule? Does it just symbolize the knowledge? Well... You know, I don't know, Adam. It could be, could be. I, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to say that there doesn't exist somewhere. Um, in fact, I'm inclined to believe that there does exist uh, such a place, maybe several places yet to be found. Uh, there's all not, kinds of talk about the the chamber at the foot of the Sphinx. I've heard that stuff. Like Graham Hancock has talked about yeah. that. And and I don't know any more than anybody else does. I don't claim to know any more than that. But it does certainly seem plausible to me that such a thing could have been done, just exactly as if we were faced with our own impending catastrophe. What steps might we take? Right. And 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 I'm going to have to go in a minute, but I'll, yeah. I'll leave you with this. One of the things that we might do if we discovered we were faced with an impending catastrophe that could result in global havoc havoc and and the collapse of civilization what might we do to ensure that some remnant or or as much as possible of our knowledge and science and technology might be preserved for the sake of those coming after who have to be have to rebuild and if you don't necessarily uh know to what extent uh the surface of the earth is going to be affected by this um you might choose to uh, put your time capsule off planet somewhere. Hmm. So maybe we can leave it at that. And I, I, those I who are listening, I, I think we'll have to continue this some um, continue this discussion because there's a lot more I think to talk about. But uh, Randall, uh, real quick, where can people get in touch with you? And also, uh, what's next for you? Is there a book in the future? Yeah, I've been writing religiously until I get interrupted with, you know, the, the, the necessities of day-to-day life. You know, I have a business, a building business. I've been really focused on trying to get, a, get, get work lined up for the rest of the year, which will then allow me to do more research and travel. But I am planning this trip in September uh, back to the Pacific Northwest to fill in gaps. Uh, that'll probably be the subject of the first book that I'm going to try to get out there by the end of the year. Um, which basically documents the great meltdown um, and what might have triggered that meltdown and what that meltdown means in terms of, you know, the, the, the rebooting of civilization um, and so on. Th- those themes, many of the themes that we've been talking about, that's the main thing I've got coming up that I'm planning. Um, 
possibly some other things that are potential but haven't haven't materialized yet so i'm not going to talk about those until they look a little bit more certain gotcha um, but that could that could be a um a topic for a future conversation um but i am planning this trip in september for not quite two weeks probably probably eight or nine days i will be out in the field um and then come back and i've been doing a lot of design work i've been working on a um <clears throat> a system of modular construction based on sacred geometry which i think has some interesting potential to it um very cool yeah, maybe we could talk about that at, at some point as well. Um, yeah, we we didn't even get to Carrie Thornley, but we'll talk about that at some point. No, we didn't, did we? <laughs> we will no, get, and I think I, my, my big plan for now is when we hang up is I'm going to probably take a nap. <laughs> <laughs> All right, sir. Well, thank you Until so much. I have to go pick up pick up my wife at the airport <laughs> in about 45 minutes. And your uh, website is sacredgeometry.com? Go to Sacred Geometry International and Geocosmic Rex. Geocosmic R E X are the two places you're going to find. I've got, there's lots of video clips covering a lot of this stuff we've talked about that has a lot of the visuals that we, we weren't able to do. Um, on both sites, the Geocosmic Rex deals mostly with the geological stuff. Um, and then uh, Sacred Geometry International has just a whole variety of stuff, kind of primarily in the realm of sacred geometry. But there's a lot of a lot of written material. I have a lot of articles up there and essays that people could read. Excellent. And then you know if they're so inclined, they can then um, you know contact through either one of those websites. Both of them. There's a lot of YouTube videos at Geocosmic Rex. I got about four or five or six up there where it's me and Graham Hancock out in the field looking at these various features and discussing them. <clears throat> so that that would probably be of interest to some folks. Excellent, Randall. I really appreciate you being on. Uh, stay on the line for us, and guys, we will be right back to talk about, right. po- to talk about Pokemon on Conspiracy Normal. Welcome back to Conspiranormal. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but we're all pretty mind blown. Yeah, Luke, is your mind blown? Yes. I My mind was like, I was exercising a muscle that doesn't get exercised. I know. Uh, <laughs> I was pretty mind blown, but I don't think that much. Yeah, not, as, not as much as you, obviously. Zach <laughs> is here for like his like 10th... Uh, episode i think at this point yeah how's it going there zach i'm i'm good i just kind (laughs) of snuck in while you guys are doing that interview yeah most of it it's pretty good you also didn't hear the whole thing either (laughs) i I wish i could have because i was kind of lost there for a while you have to hear the whole randall carlson experience to because it all ties in together (laughs) i'll have to uh i'll have to listen to it whenever it comes out well well, Lisa came in here just briefly and started listening and And she she got this look on her face of like i'm not gonna I'm when, not going to catch up. When, so. he, when he started <laughs> going into the nomenclature of uh, yeah, they go from the, logical the, pli- the Pliocene to the Pleistocene. She just like you know shrugs or <laughs> puts her hands up in the air like I don't know, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, I'm going back to the house. <laughs> <laughs> Screw this. <laughs> I'll talk to you guys later. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what you tell me when she gets mad? She sounds like she's from Boston. Yeah, the well, no, 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 no. It's um, 
she sounds like she's from Minnesota until she starts drinking, and then somehow it evolves into like a Boston accent. I don't know where that came from. Well, you know, Minnesota. We grew up in the same town, like exactly the yeah, same place. Right. So I don't know. Yeah, it's all it's all really really weird. So anyway, I said uh, thoughts on that. Uh, Rob, you were kind of silent through through most of it. Well, I I had been watching his DVD earlier today, and it was the yeah. same kind of experience. It's like I. I was trying to do that and something else at the same time, which was a really bad idea. And I just, I feel like I need to watch it like three or four times and take notes. Like it's a college course in order to really fully understand it. It's some yeah. incredibly deep stuff. And it's so broad. It covers so many different spectrums. Like Luke was saying that it's like, it's just, I don't, it's, it's mind blowing. <laughs> Cause if you drop it for just like 10 seconds, you're going to miss something. Yeah. You're going to yeah. miss something potentially potentially important. I so, wanted to ask him like five questions, but... Some of my favorite yeah. stuff is just the the way that certain numbers keep reappearing. Like certain numbers that reappear through, um, you know, architecture that are like also represented in the solar system and stuff. That that's, that part of it is the, the most fascinating to me. Right. Right. I, I still want to know whether there's something that points to the fact that there's another comet coming to destroy us. That's another question that I'd like to ask. There's so many more questions that I have. So I think, I think, like I said, we're definitely going to have to get him back on, which we didn't even talk about. Like I, like I mentioned before, uh, Carrie Thornley, which is somebody we've talked about with Adam go rightly. Uh, Randall actually knew the guy I actually hung out with him in little five points in Atlanta back in the eighties and nineties. So yeah. that's another thing to, to sit down and talk to him about, but I want to, I want to change gears for a moment. Something just, equally mind-blowing and that's uh pokemon go pokemon and apparently we have the expert in here luke's already at what what do you where are you level 15 in two days yeah (laughs) i've been playing it since it came out i'm only level eight so i'm a little bit jealous here (laughs) i think you're cheating is there another is there another uh is there is there any more other like nerdish nomenclature that you can use? To- oh man, I could. Yeah. Oh yeah. I, well. Okay. So I I'm not necessarily cheating, but I <laughs> I have been. I did read strategy guides and I did read like loads of material <laughs> he's, first he's before grinding. I started playing. Yeah. So and, and then I was also playing Kira's game before we started too. So like I already had, you know the advantage bef- but anyway and you actually upped your 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 data plan so yeah, you can actually, play pokemon <laughs> go yeah, my data <laughs> just to play this damn game <laughs> old zach over here he's just like just playing it with his two-year-old daughter so he can you know spend some they can spend some time together and luke is luke is over here just yeah just 29 going years old well i'll tell you this yeah, yesterday when i was downtown and I was at the Capitol building catching uh, Hitmonchan's. <laughs> there, there was four obese kids sitting together at the top of the Capitol building on at the top of all those stairs. And I watched them come up all those stairs. It, it, you know, you guys have been to the Capitol, right? Yeah. There's yeah. like 80 stairs there. <laughs> oh, more than that, yeah. Yeah. And there's four obese kids like, you know, covered in sweat. But they're at they're there, and they walked up all those steps to get to the Poke Stop at the Capitol building. So is po- so Pokemon's giving hope for the world. You, you know, you Joe can... plays Pokemon Go. 
Does he really? Yeah, he does. He was telling me he was at Walmart the other day, and he caught four of them just standing at the cash register. <laughs> <laughs> he, he bought it. He, he downloaded it to spite Devin because Devin couldn't every, download everyone's, it. Everyone's, and now he's hooked. Everyone's going to. Everyone's coming together for Pokemon Go. Yeah. It, and it's gotten so serious that I was at the Grand Ole Opry earlier because there's a Poke Nexus there. And for you, for you guys that don't know what I'm talking about, that's that's where there's a bunch of po- there's a bunch of pokey stops together in a close vicinity, so you can get a bunch of things, and it also spawns a bunch of Pokemon really quickly. So I'm, I'm sitting there hanging out, and it's got it's got your locals that come there every day to play the game, and they sit there as long as I can playing the game. Mm-hmm. And this kid comes up because they don't really have anything else to do. Well, not on the weekend. Maybe they're weekend warriors. They're pokey weekend warriors. <laughs> but but anyway uh so i'm sitting there hanging out with these guys and i just met him this morning and uh this dude is like he's like man anybody that's not mystic team needs to go on down the road down to the valor spot he's like this is the mystic spot he's <laughs> <laughs> getting like the creeps and the bloods out there right? basically it's getting serious. Gang wars. Yeah. Gang wars. and then instinct sitting over in the corner playing with itself <laughs> but did you know did you know that Satan is using Pokemon Go to spawn demonic powers and murder Christians? Of well, course he is. Obviously, Did you yeah. know that? Did you know that? Okay. I just don't care. On Monday, True News host <laughs> Rick like Wiles recounted yeah. a story about how he called the police after seeing a man take this is from Right Wing Watch, by the way. After seeing a man taking photos of his office building, only to discover that the suspicious man was simply playing Pokemon Go on his phone. Wiles, however, said that something sinister is afoot, warning that these Pokemon creatures are like virtual cyber demons, and that what this man Friday was trying to find was the Pokemon demon that had been placed inside the True News office. What if this technology is transferred to Islamic jihadists, and Islamic jihadists have an app that shows them where Christians are located geographically, he asked, noting that many of the app's Pokestops and gyms include churches and other houses of worship. The enemy, Satan, is targeting churches with virtual digital cyber demons, Wiles said before adding, I believe this thing is a magnet for demonic powers. Wiles went on to claim that Pokemon masters may soon start telling people to kill people in those buildings in order to catch more Pokemon, comparing the use of the app to Philando Castile's girlfriend's use of Facebook Live. What? To live stream the <laughs> aftermath of Castile's shooting by a police officer, which he said might have been staged. That's like... 50 different things in that one paragraph. This conversation <laughs> led True News co-host Edward Saul to read a fake quote, fake quote from the creator of Pokemon allegedly endorsing Satanism. They're spawning demons inside your church, Wiles said. They're targeting your church with demonic activity. He then w- again w- warned that this technology will be used to the in- by the enemies of the cross to target, locate, and execute Christians. <laughs> so, <wanna> Luke... <laughs> I want your insight. You're a Pokemon f- fan, even before Pokemon Go. I mean, you grew well, up, you grew up at the time Pokemon first started becoming yeah, popular. And I am. I'm, right? I'm, a, I'm pretty much You're a Pokemon, Pokemon expert. Fan. You've had you had. I remember you showing me the Pokemon cards and all this stuff. Yeah. What is the problem? And I'm going to play a clip here in just a bit. Well, actually, let's play that clip first. Let's play the clip first of this pastor in I think it's Arkansas. Your home state, your, your home state, there, buddy. Zach. Hell yeah! Let's play that <laughs> clip, and we can we can we can get educated on the evil of Pokemon. I want to share with you a true story concerning the Pokemon figures. 
uh, I realize this is very controversial what I'm about to say, but I'm going to share with you something from real life. Um, probably a decade ago when Pokemon first came out, it was very big. I was called on three different occasions to deal with children who had become demon-possessed. The Pokemon character is taken from Japanese Eastern mysticism, is a New Age philosophy, uh, universalist figure that is based on pocket monsters that are types of demonic characters. I was called to deal with a child who was so engrossed in Pokemon, the child literally became incapacitated. He could not walk. He could not speak. He had black soot running out of his eyes and his mouth and his nose. And we literally cast the demons out of this child. And this child who had become a, a behavior problem and was failing in school became an exemplary student, a perfect child, was totally delivered, gave his life to Jesus as a young boy. And today's a grown man. All of this was the result of the infiltration of the Pokemon demonic character in his life. I had a five-year-old child that I was called to deal with that was watching the cartoon and the movie. And the cartoon and movie was mocking the crucifixion of Jesus and mocking Christianity and the truth of the gospel, teaching a New Age universalist message. This child manifested a demon after watching those episodes, and we literally cast the demon out of this child, and the child was totally delivered. And that mother began to put out the word all over everywhere, that everyone she knew, that uh, these characters are very dangerous. I know there's this craze out there about Pokemon, that I'm sure it's a lot of fun. As a matter of fact, someone has named my church facility, parking lot area, a gym, whatever that is, where they are doing combat. I have to tell you, the Cross Life Church in Dwayne Miller does not endorse Pokemon. And if you're listening to me and you're part of my church, you stop now and do not use our church or our property to promote this demonic issue. It's very dangerous, especially for your children, but it's very dangerous. I realize this is very controversial. And I'm going to get a lot of negative feedback probably, but I love you. I'm just telling you what I've seen in real life for myself. Okay, I've seen this for myself in real life. And um, don't play around with it. It's not worth it. There's a lot of other ways you can entertain yourself. So I love you. I'm concerned about you. And my prayer is that God, in the name of Jesus, we bind and break the demonic powers of hell in relationship to these characters. We plead the blood of Jesus against all enemies that would rise up against your children and filtrate our mind in Jesus' name. You know, I know a Christian can't be demon-possessed, but you can certainly be attacked by a spirit in your mind, and you can be demonically oppressed. So please, just stay away from it. Keep your children away from it. It's not okay. worth it. I think God, that's enough. I think we we get the we get the general gist I think I'm there. Under that guy. <laughs> <laughs> That's your former pastor, right, Red yeah. Sock? All right, my question to you, Luke, and join in on this too, Zach, since you play Pokemon. All right. Why would Christians, evangelical, whatever you want to call them, why would they have a problem with Pokemon? Well, I, I got to. Start out by saying that, um, and you every, actually know someone in your past that you know about, right? So I want you to tell that story a, too. A victim of the story we just heard. Well, I, I gotta say, man, that 
ever since I started playing that every time I go to a, a pokey stop that's at a church, like I get this kind of burning sensation on my skin. Like I started feeling it all over. And then when I, I get close <laughs> to a church, I, I just get these mental, you know, visions kind of pro- projected into uh-huh. my head. <laughs> And I see the church burning down to the ground. And so is it because of Pokemon does that to you? Have you all felt that, though? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Never so mind. is Pokemon, <laughs> the Pokemon the reason why you listen to death metal and you're wearing a ghost t-shirt right now? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but seriously, what would be the reason? Why would you think? Well, I'm, be, just, I'm just, uh, I'm not saying I, I agree with it. I just want to know why. What's the what? Why is this I happening? Might, I might have an answer. Okay. I think it. I think it might have to do with, uh, you know, that sort of uh, don't don't worship false gods thing that, uh, you know, that's one of the commandments. Uh, and and basically with Pokemon, you're like kind of obsessed with chasing down all the Pokemon. I gotta get this one. I gotta get this one. That might be part of where it comes from that they think. Okay, you know, I, I can see. We're, I can we're worshiping see, false idols or whatever I can, that I can, may I, play into it. And I can see calling addiction a demon, but to come out and say that this, you know, this child that I knew was possessed after he played Pokemon by the devil, and that I was there and we helped exercise this child, and now I'm out spreading the word against. Yeah, Pokemon. Like, we that, don't. We don't know if any of that's true. Wow. It may just well, be. We don't know what that. You know, we, we don't know what that is. I, yeah. I was going to come from a different perspective than Zach and just say that pastors need to maintain their relevance. Okay. Yeah. Well, this is what I. This is where I wanted to ask you was because you're someone that studied Japanese mythology. So, is there a link between these creatures? And we know we we okay. Any time in popular culture, we pull so, things from so mythology. Nice. We pull things in our popular culture from mythology. We do it all the time. Look at, you know, look at, like, take Thor, for instance, in Marvel Comics. And obviously that's pulled from mythology. Okay. So this is nothing new. And this happens all the time. So, you know, to to say that they're, why would they be saying they're demonic? Is it because of this link to Shintoism? Well, um, I'm not familiar with, like, every single Pokemon that's came out this far. There's like a thousand now. But I, I have also read every folk legend to come out of Japan, ancient yeah. Japan. And none of those creatures resemble any of the Pokemon that, that I've seen so far. Not Pikachu? No. Oh. Not, not a single one. I mean, you, in, in Japanese folklore, you've got, you've got frog demons that hang out in the lake and, and they jump out and they steal children and they pull them in the lake and they drown them and they kind of turn them into like, uh, waterlogged zombies. And you, you've got, uh, Japanese like basilisks that can, um, you know, you know what a basilisk is. Everyone yeah. does. They uh, look someone in the snake. eyes and turn them to stone. Yeah. yeah. The Japanese folklore has those in it. Yeah. See, I'd rather play that game. Yeah, yeah, for real. They sound the monsters sound a lot cooler, but yeah. but the the uh, the Tengu that's that's one of the biggest ones. Like those are the Japanese demons that fly into farms and they they uh, burn all the crops down and they steal people away and bring them back to their nest and stuff like that. The Tengu have uh, are humanoid with wings and they have beaks on their face. There's nothing like that out of all the Pokemon. N- nothing. I also find it interesting that in this the the I didn't, I didn't play the clip because I just I don't want to overload with clips, but the 
in the Rick Wiles statement about you know that it's satanic, and then also ISIS is going to use it to find Christians and kill them. Yeah, that they, that I found interesting since Christians are basically everywhere. Yeah, I mean, I mean uh, yeah, there's at least a billion of like them in the world, right? <laughs> I mean, it, it, so it, it, Varg will in that article. In that article, it talks about the guy that's with him, his assistant, and actually quoting uh, a fake quote from the Pokemon creator that said that the game is anti-Christian and was developed with Satanists in mind. Snopes is saying that is false. It's not real. So it's amazing how all these kind of rumors get started. And it just, especially with, here we go, social media again. It I just can't becomes believe more that right-wing more... news would post fake things. <laughs> well, right-wing watch is not a right-wing website. But yeah, you're right. I mean, it's, 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 it's pretty unbelievable. The, the amount of, the amount of fake stuff that's out there and just misinformation. I, I'm sorry. I'm not a Pokemon guy. Okay. But I don't think there's any harm in your kids playing Pokemon. <laughs> and, and Luke, you, I want you to tell that story about the kid that you knew back in the day. Yeah. The, it's, it's actually really common. You know, it's, I'm sure our, our listeners have known someone that this happened to because I, I actually met another person just a couple days ago. The same thing actually happened to. But uh, my dad had a rental house in Murfreesboro, which is a city close by. And um, it, it was back when I was a, a preteen, you know, was 12, something like 11, 12 years old. And uh, I would go next door and, and play with this kid named Cody. And he was into Pokemon, too. So we would collect cards. We'd trade everything else, you know. And uh, I went over there one day to go to go hang out with him while my dad was working on the house. And he was he's really bummed out. I was like, man, what's wrong? He's like, my parents made me burn all my cards last night and they took my games from me, too. I was like, why? <laughs> he, he said, well, the pa- the pastor at our church said it was evil and. He's like, I, I guess it's for the best, but I don't have any nothing Pokemon anymore. Yeah, and even it's back, sad. It even really back then, I knew it was, I was like, this is so stupid. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Are you serious? I, I I agree, and it's it's these things that it's these things that uh, you're gonna find something objectionable, and you want to try to shield your kids from it and it's just you're told you know like like our friend uh our friend heather who was on she was she she told me a story about being in kindergarten or first grade and bringing my little pony to class and the t- it was a christian oriented school and the and the teacher freaks out and says that the that the my little pony is demonic that was an actual thing that my little pony was demonic and apparently her mom, you know, kudos to her mom for standing up to them and saying, don't ever tell my kids that again. Yeah. Don't ever put that in. Don't, don't ever put that in their head. That to me, I think does a lot more harm than Pokemon or my little pony or Harry Potter or whatever other thing that you find objectionable. Look, I'm going to tell I'm going to say this. There's so much more things to better things to be concerned about. There's poverty. There's war. There's those type of things that as for someone that is a Christian can go out there and, and help and solve. And you got to pick your battles and, and picking your battles and trying to remain relevant 
to talk about something that is popular right now and go against it just you know it's it's asinine and that's that's the kind of stuff that just takes people away from the church in my opinion and you know we talked about a little bit about that with with johnny last week but unless anybody thinks that i'm actually just picking on christians here apparently muslims have come out against pokemon too <laughs> so the same people that have actually been you know muslims and you know we can i know i'm gonna go into all that but there's you know, talk about how that they're backwards and they're behind. Well, it looks like the really screaming evangelical Christians that don't like Pokemon can be joined by the Islamic fundamentalists that don't like Pokemon. So Sheikh Salah El Fozan said a fatwa religious ruling issued against an earlier Pokemon card game also applied to the new mixed reality app. The 16 year old edict said the game contained forbidden images and violated an Islamic ban on gambling. Pokemon Go, first released on 6th July, is proving popular in the Middle East despite not having officially launched there yet. The game has proved so popular that Nintendo, which owns a stake in the Pokemon company, has seen its shares double in value, I'm sure. The, ga- the fatwa was originally issued in 2001 by the General Secretariat of the Council of Senior Religious Scholars to which Sheikh Salah Al-Fozan belongs. It says that the ability to mutate the creatures to give them more power amounts to blasphemy as it promotes the theory of evolution. In addition, it objects to the use of the symbols and logos of devious religions and organizations. The six-pointed star is associated with Judaism, the logo and sign of the state of Israel, and the first symbol of the masonry organizations in the world, it says. The game contains many forms of the cross, which is the symbols of Christians. Okay. Wow, it's anti-Christian, right? Well, to the Muslims, it's apparently promoting Christianity and Judaism. It also highlights symbols it says are linked to masonry and the Shinto religion. Fadwas are legal edicts. They depend on who is saying them and the general acceptance by the rest of the scholars. This means that any scholars can pronounce a fatwa, but its influence might not carry beyond that particular scholar's territory. I can't even think of an instance where, there, where there's any kind of symbology in Pokemon whatsoever either. Yeah. I, I don't, <laughs> there's not a single instance yes. of, of any symbology whatsoever. Yes, it's baffling. All right, guys, I think we're going to call it because I think you guys want to get in here and practice some punk rock songs for my 40th birthday party. Yeah, we do. So, and and uh, the Human League song. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah right. League The song. one new wave. And the next time, uh, Rob, we're going to be joining forces with the... Leisure hour, people. Oh, yeah, that's right. We got the uh, the big joint episode coming up. That's right. Big joint. So, guys, we uh, don't forget www.conspiranormal.com, conspiranormal.podomatic.com. We got a Facebook page. Go like us there or hate us, whatever you want to do. Yeah. <laughs> Batchicksandpartyhats.com. <laughs> that's Luke's personal website. <laughs> Send all your emails to, to Luke Skyrider, Luke Skyrider at gmail.com. It, it's, it's actually uh, flagrum286 at gmail if any of you guys want to. <laughs> Come on. I, I want some mail. Huh? You know, I want yeah, some send, feedback. Send Luke some email, people. All right, guys. Thank you so much. And next week, we will be back with the Leisure Hour crew on Conspiranormal. Zing. Ha <laughs> <laughs>
The continent of Atlantis was an island which lay before the Great Flood in an area we now call the Atlantic Ocean. So great an area of land that from the western shores those beautiful sailors journeyed to the south and the North Americas with ease in their ships with painted sails. To the east, Africa was her neighbor. Across a short strait of sea miles, the great Egyptian age is but a remnant of the Atlantean culture. Antiluvian kings colonized the world. All the gods who play in the mythological dramas in all legends from all lands were from Fair Atlantis. Going away, Atlantis sent out ships to all corners of the earth. On board were the twelve.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.